is the Spiritual Coaching Dashboard. Our mission is to train those who give spiritual counsel to others. Whatever your skill level, we offer accessible and practical advice to those whose life or work frequently leads them to spiritual conversations. Our goal is to foster a growing relational connection with and loyalty to the God of the Bible. We help people choose life-giving reactions to the warning lights on the dashboard of their lives. Our passion comes from the belief that only healthy hearts can know God deeply and follow Him fully. Welcome, everyone, to the Spiritual Coaching Dashboard. Wherever you are on the globe, Nancy and I are honored to have you aboard. Speaking of Nancy, my beautiful bride is in the studio with me today. <laughs> well, thank you, honey. And hello, everyone. If you're interested in going back and listening to any of the three previous seasons, it would be helpful to begin with the first episode of season one. Each podcast is a standalone topical treatment, but they are episodic, so listening out of order will leave you without some necessary foundational content. Our intention with this podcast is to keep the explanation simple and relatable, and for the most part, avoid the clinical and theological terminology. So what I did is I swapped that out for modern and easily recognizable metaphors to explain spiritual and biblical ideas, as well as coaching techniques and and approaches. Now, that doesn't mean that our content is overly simplistic or or dumbed down or, or, or unhelpful to those who are further down the road, just that it's accessible and immensely usable. No matter your familiarity with the subject, you will be able to follow along at whatever level of experience and discover new ways to talk to others about spiritual subjects. Yes, and as we enter this fourth season, we will begin to offer true standalone episodes, tackling both new content as well as returning to subjects we already addressed but feel deserve greater attention. Yes, and and it's important that uh, I make a clarification. You understand my use of some terminology uh, in all of these podcasts, you, you know, I mentioned spiritual maturity and spiritual growth and those things consistently. Some people, when they hear those terms, especially if they've gone to church all their lives, might be tended to think about attending classes or amassing uh, intellectual understanding. And, and that's not what I mean when I talk about spiritual maturity or spiritual growth. I'm talking about first-person, hands-on, experiential knowledge of God. Spiritual maturity is knowing Him. It's not about what you know, it's about who you know. And that's what I mean when I talk about spiritual maturity and spiritual growth. If the relationship is strong and growing, everything else that's necessary to life as a follower of Jesus Christ will flow from that. In fact, we want you to know that we named the podcast The Spiritual Coaching Dashboard because just like the dashboard in your car, there are warning lights in our lives. They indicate to us that we need to do some heart work with God in order to step into our full potential. We need someone more qualified and experienced to do spiritual wrenching on our souls in order to improve our performance. Our dream for you is that you would unlock your potential through a heart healthy enough to know God deeply and follow Him fully, and then to pass your experience on to others. Now, without further delay, here is today's content. This is the Spiritual Coaching Dashboard, and this is also the last of three episodes on the topic of God does not hate divorce as much as He hates... dot dot dot, Or uh, God does not hate all divorce... All right, this is number three. Um, you probably really need to go back and read uh, or listen to 
episodes one and two, I say read sometimes, and sometimes I accidentally say article instead of episode because the scripts for all of these podcasts are available for free online at tutors.church slash Brave the Rapids. It is my blog site. Uh, I write there. My, my, my daughter posts articles there, too. We post the transcript for our Spiritual Coaching Dashboard podcast there. Uh, it gives you links to websites. It gives you usually more, much more passages of Scripture than I you know, take the time to spit out on the podcast. So if you would like to go back through this, check my references, uh, check my sources, go to Two Rivers, that's T-W-O-R-I-V-E-R-S dot church slash Brave the Rapids. Brave the Rapids is all one word. And um, look, uh, search for God Does Not Hate Divorce, and you should be able to find all three episodes there after today. Um... Remember, remembering that you're going to listen to episodes one and two, they really do build up into this third one and set a lot of the stage for what I'm going to say today. So that would be my advice for you. So this is a three-part series, and we've been discovering that God does not hate divorce as much as he hates cruelty and abuse, especially when it's perpetrated against the defenseless, when, when men take advantage, cruel advantage of women. What God hates is when men are selfish and brutal and abandon the wife of their youth, treating her in ways that that bring down cruelty and dangerous consequences on her, in ways that abandon their vows to her that they made to protect and to keep in love. Divorce is one way that that can happen, but especially so when it leaves the destitute, or nearly so, with no option but to provide for herself in ways that bring more cruelty and danger down on herself. So a man as being cruel. Uh, again, this was really the case in the culture that this came from uh, back in Malachi, when where where the where the God hates divorce comment is taken from. Um, back then, divorce was just cruel because of what it what it meant for a divorced woman, and the very few options she had. For making a living, um, the most obvious one was to sell herself um, into prostitution. Uh, that was about all that was left to her in that setting. Um, and that often, while maybe not quite as severe even today, um, many women, most women, uh, many of them anyway, especially when they're young, are left in, in poverty when um, a man just walks away from the marriage. Uh, and that's especially the case, again, when uh, he, she's done nothing to deserve it other than uh, he just doesn't want her anymore for one reason or another. It's cruel. It's cruel to leave her that way. And this, in the second installment of these three, we saw among a couple of other supporting items that while the marriage covenant and vows are serious, they protect a lower law that can be canceled by a higher moral law, the value of human dignity in life. So feelings are an expression of us, of our heart, of the condition of our soul at any given moment. Sad, happy, angry, grieved, depressed, wounded, right? They are like an indicator light that reveals the state of something that is otherwise impossible to read. 
You know, you would not know if an electronic device is on or off without an indicator light to communicate its state. As such, our emotions are neither right or wrong, good or evil, positive or negative. They just communicate your state. Um, in their native instinctive state, anyway, they are not wrong. They simply tell us and others about the condition of our inner and otherwise invisible world. The, the means we need, that means we need to pay close attention to the feelings of those we are in relationship with, not to mention our own, so that we know how what we are doing or saying is affecting them, whether in a healthy and loving way or in an unhealthy and destructive way. That's the loving thing to do when it comes to a relationship. We need to take responsibility for how we make others feel, even if their emotions are not what we intended them to feel. We need to be sensitive, alert, and awake to how we affect those around us. When we do not, invariably, we will wound and even unintentionally abuse people and not even know it. Um, throughout this three-part series, I've assumed that the woman in question is truly in an abusive marriage. For the sake of this article, I will not discuss when the one reporting abuse is the abuser. That's a whole other discussion. Uh, obviously, many things will be different if she is the one in the marriage that is the troublemaker. Women can be just as abusive, especially verbally and emotionally, as a guy can, and just as evil, manipulative, power-hungry, controlling, and cruel. Some women go looking for abuse where it is not, looking for a reason to cry foul. And both men and women are capable of making up just about anything to get what they want, especially if they desperately want out of a disappointing marriage. But disappointment is not what I'm talking about. If there is not abuse, the relationship can be fixed. Frankly, it can be fixed even if there is abuse. But steps must be obviously taken to make sure that the abuse will not reoccur. If there is abuse, it has to stop and, and, has been, and, and have been stopped for some time before we can um, begin on the, the repair or, or restoration of the relationship. All I'm just saying here that was while women can obviously be the perpetrator, that is not usually the case. We're assuming that it's the woman that's the abused um, and that, you know, she's that that is a real abuse. That's what we've been. That's what we've been saying. That's what we've been assuming so far. Now, continuing on topic, when I say a truly abusive marriage, I mean real or perceived abuse in all of its forms. OK, so remember what I said about feelings earlier. This is important. Feelings are not always good at distinguishing between real or perceived abuse. After 35 years of marriage, I have learned that if uh, something I do or say offends my wife, regardless of my intentions, I must apologize. It's the right and humble thing to do. If my wife feels abused, she's been abused. I know some of you don't like that, but if she has been abused, if she feels wronged, we can't say, well, you don't deserve, your feelings are wrong. You, you know, you should change your feelings. She's been abused. And if the abuse is recognized to no one else but herself, she's been abused. If she feels offense, I've offended her. If something I do causes her to feel offense, I've offended her. She's offended, right? <laughs> if she takes offense where none was met, she is still offended.
what was actually meant, what, 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 what I meant with my words or my actions, it's relevant, but it discounts nothing. It does not matter that she misjudged my words, thinking they were unkind when they weren't meant to me. Even if I, if I meant to praise or encourage her and, and she took it all wrong, I may have done absolutely no wrong and still have hurt or abused her. does not matter if she only feels abused because of her own filter put in place by, you know, maybe some prior experience that caused her to see things in a skewed or dysfunctional way. Um, even if something that happened long before she knew me, I married her for better or for worse in sickness, both physical and emotional and in health, right? If she is wounded by me, she gets the chance to heal from me in the way of, of an explanation or, a, or an apology, well, honey, I didn't mean you to take it that way, but I see that you were offended, and I'm sorry. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? So if I offend, I apologize for the fence. Whether she just felt unappreciated or, or offended or felt endangered or unsafe, it was in response to me, and I apologized to her. And I must take responsibility for making the change necessary to prevent it from reoccurring. I will say something like, "Hun, I never meant that to be taken that way. Not, you should not feel that way, all right? I, I, not you, I didn't intend for that to be taken that way, but I see that I hurt your feelings or offended you or abused or violated or made you feel uncomfortable. And I'm sorry, I love you, will you forgive me? If a guy cannot do that, apologize for their actions, even when another took them all wrong. They will never have a strong relationship with a member of the opposite sex and probably not with the member of the same sex. If guys say, I'm not apologizing for trying to be loving, she took it all wrong. That's on her. I mean, that guy needs to grow up, grow kinder, humbler, softer, smarter, and thoughtful. He needs to grow stronger so he can take responsibility for his actions, all of his actions. When we do something, anything that is taken or felt as a wound or offense by another, an apology is in order, always. The consequences and, and the way forward are strikingly different if the abuse is, is only perceived, but it is still abuse and she still needs um, someone to help her navigate the way forward with her husband. We love our wives as Christ loved the church, which means we bear with undeserved respect, false accusations, and unfair, unjust treatment. In Ephesians 5, it says, For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. And as the scripture says, a man leaves his father and a mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. That's too much to unpack here. Suffice it to say that husbands can declare their good intentions, but only if it's followed with a self-sacrificial apology. And just remember, guys, that Jesus spent no effort explaining his actions or mounting a defense when he stood on trial before he died. Right? He didn't defend himself. He did what was right, what God wanted him to do. And a but in the middle of an apology cancels it out, 
if it's followed with an explanation of why our actions were noble and right. Okay? So while I say, hon, that's not why, the way I meant that to be taken, but I see that I offended you, that's one thing. To say, well, honey, I'm sorry you feel that way, but, you know, I, I didn't mean it that way, and you shouldn't feel that way. That's a whole other statement. And, and one last reminder here, we are seldom as innocent as Jesus was, guys. Even if unconsciously done, our words and our body language and the tone of voice, they often betray us by revealing something in our heart that is not as honorable as we think. It's entirely possible that our conscious intention is good, while our subconscious self is in some way compromised. Just maybe she responded to what we do not realize we communicated and not the, you know, and wasn't really responding to the surface and conscious, conscious presentation that we're defending. She isn't responding to what we said. She may be responding to something we, we said without words. a short break so you can rest your brain. You've been used to a new episode each week as we work through our first three seasons. As we move into season four, the episodes will drop less frequently, but at least once a month. Whatever the reason and from wherever you are listening, we are so glad you have come along for the ride. That is why we are excited to invite you to help us determine some of our future content. At the close of this episode, we will tell you how you can send your questions, ideas for topics, and suggested book reviews. If this podcast is helpful, we ask that you take a moment to rate, follow, and share it on whatever platform you use to stream content, so that others can find us too. All right, let's finish today's episode of this podcast. It's, of course, as I've said before, if the husband is not a Christ follower, is unaffected by the Scripture's instructions, has no intention of changing his behavior, his, his behavior and wants to walk away from the union, we are, uh, we are instructed as believers to let them go. In 1 Corinthians 7.15, I referenced this in one of the other episodes, but if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Uh, additionally, Romans twelve eighteen says, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. All right? The believing spouse is not bound to the union, so that peace can be maintained. I think this can easily mean that they are free to remarry as well, since there is no lasting bond or bondage. I also do not see why this does not apply when the spouse, in our case the husband, says that they are Christ's father, but there is little or no evidence in their lives to prove such a claim. The teaching of James and, and 1 John come into play at this point. They tell us that when faith and love are in question, without evidentiary proof in the form of actions that validate the claim, we should not try to claim to be loving and faithful. A quick clarification is in order here, too. It is my very strong belief that when a man buys sex from a prostitute, no matter how sensual she may be in her dress or lack of dress, uh, in, her, in her pose or, or words or how consensual she is in the act, she's been violated. Men are supposed to treat women with respect, not respect as defined by our present culture, but by scriptural standards. To buy sex from a woman is an act of violence against her. 
Let me repeat that. To buy sex from a woman, even someone whose occupation is prostitution, to buy sex from a woman is an act of violence against her. In most of those cases, behind that woman, there's a pimp who is abusing her and using her, and you're allowing that to happen. Just to throw that out there. There's no intention in, in when you buy sex from a woman, there's no intention of caring for her beyond the act. There's no covenant. There's no protection. There's no promise. There's nothing. She has been violated and dishonored, treated as, as if she is nothing more than a commodity to be bought and sold. It is not much different than slavery. The act is violent in itself and helps keep her imprisoned in the sex industry, which is just more cruelty. And there's little difference between sex for hire and sex that is forced on a spouse, whether, whether uh, uh, with violence or the threat of it or not. Forced sex or any act that leads to orgasm, especially if only for one of the two, is just cruel and violent and abusive. And one more comment for clarity, a woman who is raped and happens to enjoy the act has still been equally violated. Now, back to our regularly scheduled program here. Um, uh, here is what, uh, how we walk this out at our church and in our practices, how I do this. Um, I actually greatly stressed a friendship at one point because of an accusation that I chose to, um, let's just say, follow up on. And it meant I had to ask a friend some difficult questions, um, undeserved questions because they were innocent in the end. But nonetheless, I, was, I, I had to risk that friendship to protect the woman who made the accusations. Now, I don't have steps per se, just some thoughts and guidelines on how to proceed. I, I'm assuming, you know, at, at your church you have your own procedures for dealing with messed up marriages that is uh, um, fair to and safe for, for both, equally protecting both parties. Uh, they may come to play once the truth is known. I also assume you have people de uh, designated who can handle the accusations and the discovery process as well as ongoing attempt to repair uh, should that be wise and a biblical choice, all right? So you, you have to use those. You have to work with your church leadership. So, so let me first say that we give every woman who reports abuse the benefit of the doubt up front no matter who she or the accused is. I'll repeat that, and hang on, because I'm going to qualify that in just a second. But, first of all, we give every woman who reports abuse the benefit of the doubt up front, no matter who she is or who the accused is. Now, that does not mean we automatically believe her. No, her story is not given priority over his. That would just be the opposite of the wrong that we're trying to write here. But we do, not, we do not automatically discount her story or her feelings, no matter who she or the accuser is. We also do not let the awkwardness or discomfort of a conversation that needs to happen keep us from asking the right questions, all the right questions. No one is guilty until proven so. Okay, We are willing to ask... Um, sorry, we're willing to risk walking into something that is not abuse and any fallout that may follow from the guy who's offended by the inquiry, because it's that important. 
Frankly, even though it may initially be unsettling and offensive and scary for the man who's, who's innocent, unaware, and, and accused, if they are a disciple of Jesus, they will cooperate and eventually understand why we pursued something we knew could be false. Going into that chat, the investigator's tone and posture must be calm and non-accusatory, free from anger or vengeance, and clearly set on discovering the truth before any conclusions are drawn or actions are taken. Now, if you are not dealing with a mature Christian or with someone who is not a Christ follower, things may get a little dicey. And even when a godly man is accused of abuse, he may initially resist the suggestion, which is why we never have this conversation one-on-one. It is always wise and necessary for two to go. Now, now, I feel like three can make the the one uh, in question, make them feel ganged up on. So we go two at a time to seek the truth. I will not go into discussion here about uh, um, who you should send, but obviously they need to be wise, respected, and unbiased, whether male or female. It is not necessary and usually is unadvisable to have the woman, the accuser, present at this initial chat. It will lead to further painful abuse if she's telling the truth, especially if he denies it. If he is willing and able to have a civilized discussion, even if initially he is offended, we try to determine what is true by laying out the woman's claims, his demeanor and willingness or refusal to um, concede any of her points will begin to reveal what's really going on. But this will invariably be complicated. I label this next section, don't be fooled. Why? Well, if he's abusive and if there's domestic violence, you most assuredly are dealing with a crafty and clever narcissist who knows how to work people and gain their trust and respect. That means that a very polite and responsive person may still be very guilty. And, as an aside, a very belligerent and unkind person may be completely innocent. Seeing the two of them together, uh, the accused and the accuser, may or may not help, but it, but it is probable Probably the next step, if it seems there is a chance, he is com- uh, either completely innocent or at least unaware of how he's being perceived. In the end, if she is afraid of him, even if it seems she has no reason to be, that will establish the way forward. She's afraid of him. She's afraid of him for whatever reason. Again, you, the, the, you, know, you married her for better or for worse in sickness and health, even if that sickness is her own emotional sickness. Her heart must be acknowledged and considered, even if completely unfounded. Just because he is all or mostly innocent and harmless, it in no way means she must go immediately back home. A gradual reintegration with counseling for for them both, separately and together, should pave the way and give a sense of the right timing for that to happen. And I say here, don't wimp out. I think one reason why wives are not taken seriously when they claim that they are being abused is how uncomfortable it is to deal with, how potentially awkward the conversation that needs to take place will be, and how unprepared the leadership is to to, uh, take up her defense. What, confront Joe? Why, he's the nicest guy I know. The story is so very hard to believe because they only know Joe's public church side. If the woman doing the reporting and and looking for protection should happen to be known for for any other issues viewed as indiscretions in the church, and you know, maybe she's a real or just perceived gossip, maybe she's a real or or just perceived flirt, or or you know, or simply is 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 known for um, being outgoing and likable. 
In many churches, she does not have a snowball's chance in hell of getting a fair hearing. One reason the abuse has gone on so long, which is usually true when it is finally reported, is because he has fooled both his wife and everyone else. Do not take the easy way out, hoping to escape the lingering awkwardness uh, by just believing him and discounting her and walking away. You may escape the discomfort, but not the guilt if you have chosen too quickly, judged too quickly, and are, are defending the wrong person. And, and, and she will not escape the abuse, and he will not have had to face the truth he needs to in order to pursue health himself. All facts need to be considered, but, considered, but again, innocent until proven guilty covers both the accused and the accuser. Now remember James 2, 14 through 17. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing. Let's just say they're in need, or at least they're claiming they're in need. And you say, oh, goodbye, have a great day. Uh, you know, you'd be blessed and warmed and filled and eat well, right? <laughs> but then you don't give that person any food or clothing or defense or hearing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it's dead and useless. Seeing someone in need and doing nothing, even though you have the power to help, is not just a lack of faith. It is dead and useless. If a woman is pleading for your help to escape a supposedly abusive husband, and you do nothing because it's awkward or uncomfortable or a little difficult to believe, how lazy and cowardly is that? Do not try to tell yourself or others you are a person of faith. James says that without that faith without the supporting evidence of, of faith-like action is proof that faith is not present. By the way, Few women will try to fuel, uh, fool church leaders by claiming they are being abused if it's the other way around. Abusers try to keep the situation hidden, in the dark, and, 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 and not out in the open. She would have to be a special kind of crazy or, or evil to do that. Yeah, it could happen. Right? But the better gamble is to check it out rather than assume she's lying. Even if it is not intentional or conscious on the husband's part, or is completely an unhealthy fabrication of an unwell wife, there most likely is some degree of harm occurring, and there's an opportunity to play a healing role as God's representatives. Okay, I feel the need to just repeat that for you. That pause was because, should I go back and say it again, I'm going to do it, all right? Uh, yeah, it could happen. She, she may be that crazy and that evil, but the better gamble is to check out, uh, check out her claim rather than assume that's the case. Even if it's not intentional or conscious on the husband's part or is completely an unhealthy fabrication of an unwell wife, there is most likely a some degree of harm occurring to her and there is an opportunity to play a healing role as God's representative. It may be obvious, uh, uh, but whether the, the abuse is real or perceived determines how we proceed from there. If real, okay, that leads you down a very different road. If only perceived or at least unintended, uh, that, of course, warrants a far different and more tactful and respectful prescription. Uh, protection at all costs for both parties is the main thing. If perceived, then obviously some counseling for both individually first and then again together once some head healing has taken place you know that's necessary temporary se separation may be wise as well even if it's only perceived abuse 
If real, temporary separation is usually in order, and reconciliation only after he has consistently proven that God has transformed him. And by consistently, I mean, you know, 6 to 12 months, not weeks. In the case of real abuse, depending on the degree uh, of wounding, longevity, and, and, and spiritual responses from both, reconciliation is certainly possible, but divorce may be the only way and safe option, the only wise and safe option. So, for the sake of this discussion, we assume that the woman in question is truly in an abusive marriage. And, and, and I do, you know, I, I am saying here that may only be perceived, but abuse is still happening. All abuse is abuse. Sexual, emotional, verbal, spiritual, and perceived only. All of which comes with manipulation, cruelty, and violence, and various levels of deception. Of course, that's not true if it's perceived only. It's going to be very hard for guys to, to uh, especially if they seriously love their wife, to have the courage to be willing to admit that they may have abused, even if unintentionally, their wife. It's very, very hard to take. So we have to be considerate and patient in this, these circumstances. Uh, in the case of, of, of real abuse, power and control are both indicators and the purpose. It is incredibly destructive and emotionally painful for anyone to endure this abuse day after day. It can destroy the heart of a woman and kids without a single physical violent act and still be very violent and controlling. Fear is the primary substance of this world for the abused. Of course, it also is the motivator for the abuser. And extricating them from it must be their goal and that of those helping them. Various other steps can be taken afterward depending on the situation. I, ex I explained uh, uh, in these podcasts why I believe that we can confidently conclude that the Bible does not really say that God hates all divorce, not directly and clearly not in the passage so often repeated and believed to say that it does in Malachi. What the passage irrefutably does say is that God hates it when men uh, cruelly treat their wives whom they have vowed to, to love and keep and protect. In fact, the way I said it, God hates marriage. When that marriage is protecting the abuse of an innocent, defenseless woman. And in fact, we concluded the Bible gives a woman who is trapped in an abusive relationship permission to exit the marriage on the basis of a higher law that says that the human life is more valuable than keeping a promise if that promise endangers a life. And that frees her, by the way. That frees her to move on and to, and to remarry and establish a new life. God gave an exception to protecting the marriage covenant at all costs, and at that only, and at at that only for hard heartedness. If we will make a reluctant exception for unforgiveness, I am sure we would make a willing exception for abuse. If you advise others from within the church or under the covering of the church, I suggest that you think, study, and pray through how you will handle domestic violence before someone comes to you and seeks your counsel and help. Make sure your policy reflects the full teaching and spirit of the Bible and the heart of God. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you heard something that got your attention, whether it be for your own relationship with God or for coaching others, do not waste the divine nudge. Be sure to take the time to think through how God would have you work the new thought into your life and practice. If you do spiritual coaching, either formally or informally, remember that it is hard to lead where you have never been. 
We firmly believe that God will exchange the wounding of the past for the wellness of the future. A transformation that frees us to be wholeheartedly available to Him and those near us. As we walk into that healing, we gain the humble confidence and godly credibility needed to step unrestricted into the life and impact God has for us. And when we experience that for ourselves, it gives us a compelling story from which to call others to experience the same. We pray that God uses the Spiritual Coaching Dashboard to inform and transform your life before it reaches another. If you would like to submit a question or topic for a future episode of our podcast, here as promised is the contact information. The email address is carrie at tworivers.church or text at SC Dashboard from the social media platform of your choice. Again, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Spiritual Coaching Dashboard.